And it's day 11 at the New York Film Festival, day 11 of our daily podcast from the 57th New York Film Festival. This is Eugene Hernandez, and today I'm here with a former colleague and the chief critic and executive editor of IndieWire, Mr. Eric Cohn. Welcome, Hello. Eric. Happy to be here as always. Uh, Eric's here because uh, in a moment we're going to hear the complete audio of Eric's conversation, um, Eric's uh, panel about the making of Uncut Gems, which we'll get to uh, shortly. Um, but before we do that, I thought it'd be a, a nice moment to not only check in and talk about the Safties in a moment, but maybe also just talk about your own, um, as a New Yorker, your own relationship to the New York Film Festival. Um, tell me something about uh, maybe an early impression or, or when did you start coming to this festival? I mean, I started coming to the New York Film Festival as a student in NYU and uh, it's just a, a big film geek and the history of this place was always just so mind-blowing to me. You know, the yeah. kinds of directors who have played at this festival over the years are people who, they, they don't even seem like real people, these auteurs, <laughs> yeah. you know, these great auteurs going back to the, to the 50s, the 60s, you know, an amazing time for movie going in this country. But what's kind of cool Cool is that you see the through line from you know Boonwell or Berlucci or whoever else has played here in the past and the kind of directors who come here now because the audiences turn out. So I come to New York Film Festival and I've seen a lot of these movies already at Cannes or, or wherever I go to a lot of big festivals, but I'll always go back to the ones I really like, whether it's Parasite or Pain and Glory or Uncut Gems, which we're talking about, because I want to see how this really active film culture that's like the most discerning movie-going audience in the world, I would say, uh, reacts to these movies. And it's really exciting to go see them, you know, after I've, I've already experienced them. So I, I know that I like them, but I want to see what this crowd makes of it because I came out of this crowd. Well, maybe with a, you're, you're talking about a movie like Parasite. We'll get to Uncut Gems in a minute, but whether it's Parasite or Pain and Glory, movies that, um, that you've already seen and you've already written about, you've, you've had an opportunity to really process uh, the movies in a certain way. Um, what, is, what do you get from watching it with a, with a local, not just a local New York audience, but a general public paying audience? And maybe specifically in the case of those two films, what did you take away from those films or what did you see differently than the first time you saw them? Well, the first time, I mean, the, the thing is that something like Pain and Glory or Parasite the expectation is pretty high that you're going to be satisfied with it because of the director's track record, but you also don't necessarily know what you're in for. So when I saw Parasite at Cannes, so I obviously didn't know it was going to win the Palme d'Or, but also I didn't know how many surprises there were going to be in that movie. Even Pain and Glory actually has a twist ending, which I'm not going to spoil, and you wouldn't expect that in the Almodovar oeuvre. But, mm -hmm, but, the, mm -hmm. but also it was a director who... You know, I'll always go watch his latest film, but I also was not super enthused with his last one. And so it was one of those things where it was like, well, did he lose his Midas touch or whatever? And you, you go sort of fingers crossed, hoping that you're going to get something good. And it's really, you know, satisfying when you do. But in this context, it's something else because you see how the audiences here have their own unique responses to things to a large degree because they're seeing these directors always in this context. It's almost like they, they expect the films to be here, but they're actually here for a reason. And I know this is a very tightly curated festival. So you're, you're feeling the audience kind of react to the curation of the festival, which is really cool to see up close. Well, let me, that, that makes me want to ask you a, a more, a kind of broader question before we get back to Josh and Benny Safdie. And that is kind of the role and nature of festivals. And, and you, you have the uh, luxury and benefit and viewpoint point of someone who travels to the travels the world sees films at festivals of all different types all different shapes and sizes um, do you feel like um, you know using the New York Film Festival as an example or using any other festival do you feel like the role and purpose and potential for film festivals is is evolving or changing well, right I think now. what film festivals are doing is they're the front lines of, of what film culture looks like more, now more than ever. Because if you read the headlines in my publication and elsewhere, they often feel very apocalyptic. Oh, box office going down, all these disruptors. It's all about TV and Netflix and Disney Plus are going to war and all that stuff. And, you know, there is truth to that to some degree. But what film festivals do is they create a specific category. They say that this is what quality in cinema looks like and what this art form is doing. Doing. So whatever is going on in terms of the future of the medium, we're going to capture it right now and tell you what it is and tell you what the quality of it looks like. And that's obviously become 
an even more important task than it ever was before. And so I obviously find it very gratifying to be able to go to a film festival and see really good movies being made because contrary to the popular belief that, you know, there's all this really scary existential stuff happening with the medium, some of the best directors alive are still making some of their best movies ever. So that gives me hope and it also gives me a lot to write home about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A few minutes ago, you were talking about kind of the festival, the New York Film Festival, having this this history and this legacy of these amazing auteurs that have that have that have really been introduced to to certainly New York and and maybe even um, to to a broader film culture um, by this festival decades ago. Um, help us understand now then um, the Safdie brothers. They've certainly been in this festival before, but they haven't made that many movies. So as a way of introducing the talk that we're going to get to in just a moment, um, where do you see these two filmmakers fitting? And, and maybe tell us a little bit about um, your own kind of thoughts on, on kind of how they connect to sort of American independent film right now. Well, the thing about the Safties is they exist on a continuum. There are some filmmakers who come along and it's like they watch, you know, every Quentin Tarantino movie and then they they try to make a Quentin Tarantino-like movie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And on paper, you could say, well, the Safties, you know, they're they're trying to be Cassavetes or something like that. Or they're trying to capture that, you know, kind of gritty, paranoid 70s New York style of filmmaking. But the truth is they are doing that through their own lens. It's a very contemporary, immediate style of filmmaking that feels like a natural evolution of what we've seen people be doing in in various eras of independent filmmaking for years and yet they've also developed their own distinctive voice so the kinds of characters that you see in their early work, whether it's Pleasure of Being Robbed or Daddy Long Legs, which, you know, if you're not familiar with those movies, I highly recommend checking them out because they're a great introduction to their work. But once you see these later films, you see an evolution of their sensibility, the kind of these anti-heroes that are so specific to New York, these people who are so anxious and and trying to get by and doomed to fail no matter what they do, and it's both funny and tragic at the same time, they're not stealing that from anybody really except real life. And so what I think is really great about them is that they are scrappy independent filmmakers who are inspired by certain traditions in that respect, but they're also very much um, in tune with their own voice. And so it's great to see them in the New York Film Festival because I think that um, they're just very confident American directors. And that's something that we need to be very cognizant of right now because it's just hard to get movies made in this country and, and they're doing it on their own terms. And major actors are coming to uh, to work with them as you'll hear in the talk with Adam Sandler, you know, doing the legwork to get to these guys. I think that says something about, you know, what's attractive when it comes to filmmakers who who have a singular voice. And and this film that, that, that you really dug in with them about Uncut Gems in the in the conversation with them that we'll throw to in a moment. Um, this film is kind of a, uh, I don't know if it's a fair word, you might have a better word, summation, or it has a connection to so many of their other works that you've just mentioned. Yeah, Maybe I mean, give us a little bit of context You can on even that. see their, their obscure NBA documentary, Lenny Cook, has a relationship to this movie as well. I mean, it's obscure in the sense that it's not as well known as, you know, Good Time or something like that. But I think that you can find bits and pieces of the DNA in terms of the energy of their work, the kinds of characters that they look at, and also the way that they look at uh, New York itself as this sort of like living organism with all of these contradictions and it's like constantly moving. The movie doesn't sit still and life doesn't really sit still. So it really feels like when you're watching one of their movies, you're, you're kind of in a world less than like passively watching a story. I get the impression from watching your conversation with the Safties and their and their colleagues that they also kind of don't sit still or at least uh, <laughs> they're constantly... They're pretty anxious guys. They talk about it a bit and you, you can pick up on the, the, the chemistry between them. I mean, the way they cut each other off and stuff like that. And it's like, you kind of, you, you feel like, well, okay, on some level, this feels very dysfunctional, but at the same time, they're all working towards some kind of common goal. And when you look at the movies and you look at the people, it makes a lot of sense. Uncut Gems is a film that A24 is releasing in theaters later this year. Uh, but Eric was kind enough to 
to sit with them and sit with their collaborators and talk about the making of that film. So we're going to go to the audio and Eric's introduction of the panelists in just a second. But uh, thank you very much, Eric Cohn, for joining us on the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. And and there's no spoilers in the conversation, so you can listen to it without seeing the movie and then see it later. No, no, No worries on that. Great. Thank you very much, Eric. Thanks. With 59 Primetime Emmys and 30 Academy Awards, HBO Documentary Films has been bringing audiences a full spectrum of stellar, non-fiction programming by acclaimed documentary filmmakers for decades. Dive into the year's most compelling documentaries and get ready for the powerful films to come. Stream the stories that matter, including The Case Against Adnan Saeed, The Inventor, Emmy Award-winning Leaving Neverland, just to name a few. And look out for the exciting new films coming soon. Only on HBO. Hey, everybody. So, uh, very quick show of hands. How many people here actually have seen Uncut Gems? All right, it seems about right. What'd you guys think? Pretty good, right? Pretty good. It's it's, it's actually a wild, wild ride of a movie. And those of you who haven't seen it, I think we're going to give you some really good reasons to anticipate it tonight. I first got introduced to to the Safdie Brothers filmmaking, I think maybe 12, 13 years ago, with a movie called The Pleasure of Being Robbed. And what was so great about that kind of sensibility that was in that film was it had this kind of scrappy DIY New York filmmaking mentality that we just don't see enough of anymore. And, you know, well over a decade later, through films like Heaven Knows What, Daddy Long Legs, Good Time, and now this one, you see a consistency in that approach, even as the scale has gotten a little bit bigger and there's some familiar names. And this movie with Adam Sandler as this great kind of hustler in the Diamond District still feels very much like something that is close to the ground and close to the culture that it's representing. And a big part of that is the collaborative energy that these guys bring to their projects. So what's really cool about the panel that we have is that we have a real cross-section of people who work within the Safdies universe in addition to the directors themselves. So I'm going to bring them all out here one by one, starting with casting director Jennifer Venditti. And uh, the, the score in this film is absolutely incredible. Daniel Lopatin, please come on up. Uh, producer Sebastian Bear McClard. This guy probably doesn't want me to call him the third Safety brother, but I know he works closely with the, these guys. The co-writer and editor, Ronald Bronstein. and Josh and Benny Safdie. All right, so let's get the uh, shiniest aspect, whoa. Uh, let's get the shiniest aspect of Uncut Gems out of the way up front. I seem to recall hearing a couple of years ago, maybe I ran into you guys in this room, you were at New York Film Festival, and you said you had a basketball date with Adam Sandler. So tell us a little bit about how the Sandler factor came together for this movie. That was actually probably right when we approached him, right? About it. Uh, that we, I remember we had, <coughs> we did a, we, we shot, we were coming from an all night shoot doing this Jay-Z music video uh, for a song that uh, Marcy Me, and we had basically shot until four or five in the morning. And that mo- that music video was kind of like a fuck before you marry with uh, Darius Kanji. So it was like getting to know him and working with him, and and uh, and basically, that. We, and we then we went fast and then we, Sa- we heard that Sandler was in New York, and um, yeah, we had to meet him at I think something like seven thirty eight in the morning, and and play like two one two full court basketball. Uh, which is having now worked with Sandler is makes so that's like if you know basketball that's like such a great metaphor for what it's like to be collaborating with him and be working with him it's just nonstop you know very collaborative energy but we went out to him in 2012 with the, with this script uh, and you know uh, justifiably it didn't get farther than an entry level person at at uh, his in with his people. And uh, yeah, and we went this very long circuitous route 
in the process of making like four movies and uh then he saw good time we tried to meet with him in Cannes when he was there with Meyerowitz story we were there with good time and he was like i'm here with my wife like leave me alone kind of but uh but it's not like just because when he's you know he was actually just looking at it in a very sincere way like i'm going to the south of france with a movie that meant a lot to me at the to him at the time and he didn't want to like do business stuff so he didn't meet with us but then he saw a good time <clears throat> and then i got a text out of nowhere that just said hey your movie's incredible. I said, who is this? He goes, Sandler. I said, w w uh, which Sandler? And he said, the famous one. And I said, and I said Richard Sandler? And uh, who's a photographer who I know, who I knew. And then he goes, the comedian, Adam Sandler, you idiot. And I was like, oh. <clears throat> then we talked and, and uh, he read the script very soon after. And that began, you know, a very open, nice, great collaborative experience. Yeah, and the thing that's really fascinating about this movie is that, yes, there's an amazing Adam Sandler performance at the center of it, but there's a lot of really interesting New York characters, too, who get you know various levels of screen time. But Jennifer, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it was like to sort of deal with the, the world that these guys were trying to construct with this movie and figure out you know how to, how to get the right kind of people in there. Because some of them don't really seem like they've acted a bunch, and you're kind of throwing them into the center of this really complicated filmmaking experiment with some pretty big names. Yeah. Um, well, I think at the beginning of all the projects that we do, it's, it's, there's, they do so much research. I don't know if everyone knows, but this is a 10-year process. So everything that we do, it's, we approach it first with that. It's like understanding the world. So they give us as much, my team and I, as much information as possible to really understand what the world is. And then, um, so our first meeting, it's like they had spent so much time in the district. They just gave us names and names and people and people. And then we go uh, to the district, to the Diamond District, and really meet all these people so we can experience it. We go to, we went to one of the big families on the block, their house in Forest Hills for dinner, um, and just really feel what it is, what where this world is coming from so we understand it. So that's the first process. And then um, after that, after really getting into it, there's a long process of um, bringing in people that we think that we find from that world that we think are interesting and could be cinematic and bringing them into the office. And we go through an interview process. Then after the interview, we're looking for people who their world meets with the character's world that we're looking to cast. And then from that, we do improvisational exercises with them to see who really can be themselves, because everyone feels like, oh, it's nothing, you're just yourself, but it's really hard to be on camera and be yourself. So we want to see who can bring something actually to the character um, through improv improvisation that actually inspires the guys as well, and that, that there is like a, an ease and a comfort to them to actually be present, because they're going to be mixed with a professional actor, and you want to be able to have that alchemy that they're comfortable and they're not throwing everyone else off and it, it brings the reality of the world to the professional actors as well. So we go through that process and that's like a long, exciting process. <laughs> um, and yeah, the, and inter then <clears throat> the interviews that, that you would say, oh, we just posted this one interview. I mean, I, I, hopefully everyone in this room has seen Jen directed a movie called Billy the Kid and it's an incredible documentary uh, and, and that's actually how we met. And and with and Ron, Ronnie, Ronnie too. We, yeah, uh, we all met at South by Southwest. Uh, and yeah, twelve years ago. Uh, but but yeah. So when these interviews get posted, uh, uh, that are conducted by you, they're, you know, they're they're, uh, they're mini movies. Each one of them. So sometimes it's just like I immediately know the person's not right, but I'll find myself watching a twenty-five minute interview well, the, the, yeah, anyway because before, the people. thing that's so beautiful, it's such an honor just to say to be able to work. I mean, I feel like if these guys weren't doing what they were doing, they'd do what I did <laughs> too, or they could do what I did. And, you know, before Instagram stories, before all that, they were doing something called buttons, um, which like, when you think about it, that was like before all the Instagram stuff. And I remember one seeing, minute captures. Yeah, I remember moments. they were one minute captures of, of moments on the street of people. And I saw that and it was just like that was I was doing casting at the time, but it was more in um, advertising, print and documentary. And I just thought like, oh, 
it's that thing of like the magic of the cinema of everyday life that they were distilling and they saw it and they knew it. And to be able to work with them and be able to have someone that cares as much as you care about people and to see the magic in everyday people the way they do and to treat every actor, whether it's a professional actor or a non-professional actor, they get so psyched. They're so excited. And like Josh said, even if it's not the right person, it's like there's a beautiful process in the casting process of this exploration of humans. Like we think we go in knowing, we don't know what, we think we know what we want, but someone comes in and they're revealing themselves to you and it's like adding to the process to say like, is that it? Is it not it? Maybe it isn't it, but it's like you store it someplace else for something else. And it just, I think that what they do also is the level of passion for everything is so heightened that it just like, it keeps you in it. It keeps it, the discovery. I always say part of my job, it's like part detective, part anthropologist, part um, acting teacher, part director, part... Astronomer. <laughs> yeah, there, there's so many levels to it and... and um, it's they're like incredible collaborators, and they're just. I mean, you love casting, don't you? Well, there's, there's. I mean, ca casting the, is. It's. The, it's the, hard to say what what um, is the most important part of filmmaking. But casting, you know, yes. as you always say, ca the greatest casting is be better than the best screenwriting. So well, the, the what's amazing is there were certain whenever we would get these emails, there would just be all oh, this like long list of people, and I think for for the character that ended up being Keith. There was so Phil, Phil, his Phil, name Phil, Phil, Keith. Well, Keith, that ended up being Keith. Half this crowd hasn't seen the movie, so yeah. it could so be there's a, there's a So there's like a heavy that's in the movie, and it could be so on the nose, you know, the casting for that, because the guy could just look the part. But we desperately wanted to have somebody who had a lot more kind of history to them and more kind of just character. And so it was a really hard one to find. I think you went through so many people. But again, all of these people, even if they weren't right, there was something interesting about each one of them we you learn. Could, yeah, yeah, you learn, and then okay, well, let's move in that direction. Just to be clear, too, we're not. I people always like stereo say that I'm like this person that doesn't like actors that I just do street scouting, and it's not that at all. I love actors. It's we just like the alchemy of both. So, you know, it would be so much easier just to be in my. You know, we we do both, and so we go through the process of seeing all these actors, and then the process of bringing all these other people in that needs so much more work, and it, it's a lot harder. The best <laughs> are the days where the actors are in the waiting area with the real people But remember that, that one yes. actor who scared the shit out of you Yes, guys. that was yeah. so intense. So that, but that, but then we wanted, we were all just curious. We were like, well, let's all just work with him. Let's, do, let's do another And then you get us. into a room with somebody, and then you start to see, like what was, weird for, what was weird for us a little bit on this project was you get into a situation where you're starting to see the way previous work is being digested oh, yeah, yeah. and interpreted and think and seeing what somebody might think you what you want exactly so people and the and you know i'm seeing it with this new movie people saying like cocaine induced it's like no but but um you know you get that you get people who think that you want this so they're coming in like a thousand miles per hour and that's fine like i can you know i can get with that yeah. but that one person really wanted to push the boundaries of what is real yeah. it was almost like a kaufman performance totally. for like three of us yeah and uh, we it was break it. it was that was intense i actually at one point i was like do i now engage in this performance yeah yeah <laughs> and like do I punch this person? Yeah. Do I My let them punch me? Alan yeah. Was scared. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, he got really close. And this was this is an actor who had a lot of credits too. This wasn't like a first yeah. timer. So, but you're seeing somebody who's like, you know, think like read, you know, uh, Cassavetes and Cassavetes, and is like, you know, maybe Bring saw like it, five yeah. minutes of Faces or something. Mm -hmm. Not to demean this person, it's just like, oh, I have to be intense. Right, but right. that happens with me all the time. People yeah. think, oh, she just likes free. Yeah. So they'll send me these letters, like showing me what a freak they can be, like how freaky can they be? Yeah, it's like that's, that. That's it's it's, that's it's not about, it. Yeah. It's like we're into people. It's like we were saying with what buttons is. It's like to be able to. I think to be an actor is to be able to be present and honest and vulnerable in the moment. And we're looking for people that are authentic, authentically who they are in that moment, in presence of whatever that scene is. And being an example of like what it is to be a human in that situation, and it, the more honest it is, the better. It's not about being weird unless and, you unless your thing is that, you know. And I, it's it's so funny to get at those things. We actually also had to come up with all of these 
insane improv scenarios for each person. Yeah, so yeah. it's individualized for each character. It's a totally new scenario for them to act out. And it's just, it was, that was so insane. And, yeah, yeah. To come and up that with. comes from the interview yeah. process mixed with what the character, so what, mm -hmm. what, what character are we considering them for? What's the scenarios they're going to be in there? What did we glean from them in the interview process that is like their strong suit and then coming up with this scenario of like seeing, and that's the thing. I mean, Kevin ta Garnett talked about that a lot about, oh, I was just playing myself. It wasn't that hard, but it is, even when we're, we're cultivating in that way, taking something specific from their life and putting a lot of people can't do it. Sebastian, I, I want to ask you from a okay. producing standpoint, just to, to get that perspective, because I think everything you guys are talking about is fascinating because it's such a unique process. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, what kind of ch challenges does this create practically in terms of just going out there and, and shooting a movie like this and staying on schedule and all that stuff? I, I mean, I think that w when they were talking back and forth about the casting, I thought it's kind of the same. There's a lot of overlap in how when we're researching the film, kind of we're we're casting and producing at the same time. We're, like, we're leaning on people who could be characters in the movie for things that we want to pull from either their real lives that we need in the movie or vice versa. And They don't even know that we're casting them. Maybe we're just trying to do a deal with them and trying to almost method produce. Uh, in terms of how it affects the scheduling, it's, you know, as long as they show up, for the most I mean, some of these guys don't really necessarily honor the... Um, the stakes that a film set is, where where we're like, oh my god, we're cramming, a hundred and fucking fifty pages, or add ADR, so two hundred pages into twenty nine days, and we're never gonna be able to do it, and everything feels like a race, and they're like, eh, I'm late for work, right? It's not that that big of a difference to them to be a few hours late for work, and to us, it's the world, but then. Jen and I are calling, you know, a construction worker in Staten Island a hundred times in the morning. I mean, it's fun. It <laughs> keeps you on your toes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's all—it's all adrenalized. Like, there's a method to all of this, and even for you know, eight years ago, when Josh and I are walking around the Diamond District trying to design a penthouse so that maybe they'll give us a location for free before we know that whether we're going to have any money for the movie. Even we're just still going ahead and making and making and making, like that was an adrenalized process then. And it kind of carries over for uh, ad infinitum. You know? Well, the thing that's interesting too, is it's like it, this movie would feel like a very loose improvisatory thing if it, if it wasn't always kind of fe feeling like it was building somewhere. And I think the music is a big part of that and we should talk about that as well. So Dan, t tell us a little bit about how you kind of worked with the Safties to figure out how you want music to play a role because I, I wasn't counting, but I kind of feel like you hear it pretty much start to finish in this one. Um, yeah, it's in there quite a bit. 52 minutes. <laughs> 134 minute movie. There's always kind of like a real easy um, first basic question to deal with is kind of like, is the score mostly dealing with our hero's quest and the inner world of our hero and his desires and his ambitions or where he's at in any moment in time? Or is it is it speaking to the atmosphere that the hero is kind of em, embodied in? And for the most part, I think in our collaboration, it's about the hero's journey and it's about his in, in, in inside world. And it's a kind of, it's suggestive of, of his, something, the, something Howard Ratner uh, you know, how Arcani even can't really describe, but feels. And so my job is to sort of amplify uh, those ineffable things, because everything else is covered. They got everything covered. There's, there's everything that you're seeing on film. There's everything you're hearing in the dialogue. So, so I'm almost um, kind of like, um, it's some kind of special sauce. So, Externalizing <clears throat> spirit. Yeah. Yeah, it's something. It's something else, which is kind of intense because it's like, okay, so I have basically like a, I have to be a rabbi, or it's like very strange. I just have to give some kind of answer that we can't quite explain, but everyone agrees that's what I needed to hear. I can go back and feel good about the film. <laughs> so, so it's it's curious, um, but it it sounds like difficult, but it's 
actually just fun. Um, and I think we started this conversation probably sometime in the winter. And I had, we both had, I think, you know, in some conversations Josh and I had, we're like, well, maybe it's, is it orchestral? Is it something, is it some, what's the other texture that we didn't get a chance to do, but feels like might be right here. And so, so we kind of just naturally developed this language around the, the sound of the film that had something to do with a lot of the things we are sh shared interests in, in um, like synthesizer music in general, like a very rich history of synthesizer music, stuff from new age and stuff that's kind of more almost kind of like academic experimental synthesizer records or, or, or um, uh, library records or like, uh, any number of things, but also Haydn. And that was Benny's, uh, well, just an idea that that was in place for one scene at one point that they went away from, and then we kind of rounded back to it, and it solved a huge problem, which is what is the spirit of the scene? And it was actually, a lot of it just had to do with sort of uh, tracing this beautiful piece of music that was, I don't know, 200, 300 years old or whatever. So um, to answer your question, it's, 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 it's an improvisation and it's a lot of it, it's just kind of um, just throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks to a certain degree, but still having that prime directive, which is this is the inside world of this character. This is his dreams. Th these are his obsessions. These are the things he really believes in. And, and just to, to illustrate where things can go wrong when you're dealing with that kind of stuff, music, it's very easy to go from something really beautiful to something really cheesy and, and, and almost patronizing. And I don't, I, you know, scoring films is still, so, you know, I've been doing this for a few years. It's not like 20 years. I don't know all the, uh, you know, ways around uh, creating music for other people's needs. I usually just make it for myself, right? But what was interesting in working with them and, and their characters are always aspirational. Their characters always mean really well uh, in the two projects we worked to together. Maybe, maybe even more than that. Maybe it goes way back. Maybe it's just something you guys do. But when you're when you're making music that's kind of like in a major key, which was something new for us on this one, it can easily be very cloying, right? It can easily kind of patronize. And so one of the things that was very tricky and was a challenge on this one was how do we make beautiful, very almost positive music for the most part that doesn't feel like it's mocking um, um, our hero on his quest, no matter how debilitating or wildly uh, uh, we might feel like it's a misunderstood quest, but you still have to honor it. And well, so that I, was the part that was I love all of the, the emotional kind of words that were associated with all of the different pieces of music, because it wasn't, it yeah. sounds like a very technical thing, but it's just, I don't know, it's, there's all these kind of very physical ideas behind all of that. Yeah, I mean, the score was mostly uh, charged by, by uh, feeling uh, in like a new age sense of like, this thing is supposed to evoke this feeling for me, and those feelings are not so Mickey Mouse, you know what I mean? It's not like anger, this, you know what I mean? It was, it would be something like empty desire, you know what I mean? And we try to get at that in some weird way. But I wanna back up one second, because I don't wanna give people the wrong impression about the process in, in a sense. And, I'm, I love listening to Dan talk and Eric as well, but I, but I, we st we got onto something interesting about about the casting process and then how it informs the writing, and and um, and I don't want to, you know, I, I want I want it's important. This is the first group of people who are really hearing us talk about the way we made this thing. Again, it was again it was like a decade's worth of work, but it was, you know, for example, like this character Keith Richards, you know, his audition tape comes in. We watch it, and as a group, we react to it, you know, first as just like, oh my God, look at this character. And he is doing a somewhat structured improvisation. And he's deciding to bring ideas to the table, and that's kind of what we look for. Someone who can bring ideas, because then I'll show it, we'll show it to Ronnie, and we'll look at it, and then there was one particular thing that we really globbed onto, 
And then we ended up working that into the script. And then we asked, we talked to Jen about that. And Jen starts to develop this rigor with these, with the people who are getting to the next step. So that, and then Jen's really putting them through it. They got to show up at this time, now again, now again, and through, you know, persistence and, and uh, responsible, responsible people, you end up starting to lose certain, you know, people, if you, certain uh, candidates that you would usually have fall to the wayside. But when you get to the point where all of a sudden when we're showing up and we're working with them, now we've actually gone in and we've worked this dialogue from an improvisation that we really like now into the script and we're giving this script back to the person and we're saying, all right, now let's try seeing that in with, with superstructure. So uh, to me, it's important to, to know that like you were focusing on these, a lot of the first time actors, but the film as was for us, was the first time we were working with a lot of veteran actors as well, mm -hmm. who are used to hitting beats, hearing lines, get, you know, knowing when they can come in. Oh, you're saying that I, all I can think of, I remember when Eric, when we're in the truck, there's a scene that happens. It's very enclosed. Eric Bogosian. Yeah. There's a very enclosed scene. There's three, four, five, six people in the car, right? And then Josh and I are in the trunk. And there's three non-act, thir three first-time actors, and then Eric and Adam. And, and a stunt coordinator. And a stunt coordinator who's driving, who's making sure everything is safe. Gets very violent in there. And everybody's screaming. And Eric keeps trying to get his lines in. And at one point he goes, he starts screaming, he goes, I have lines, I have lines. And he got so angry, but then he said, I don't know about yeah, you guys, yeah, yeah, but I, I have lines that yes. I have to say. So, <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. And so, and he hits, the, he hits the, the dashboard so hard, he's like, I almost broke my hand. But then we realized, okay, I said, look. I loved well, it, I was like, I let me go talk to this so, guy. So, but then, so then we talked to him, we said, okay, look, Eric, if they're not listening to you, just tell them, shut the fuck up, and then say your line. Because now he's like, he just works in. He's like, oh, yeah, great. I'm the boss. I can tell him it's shut the fuck up. It's consistent with the character. Yeah. So yeah. he tells him that, and then he gets his line off. So you have to figure out how to work this in with everybody in, a, in an but interesting there, way. There is a, there's a challenge there where um, Eric, and we talk about this with, with Sandler and with a bunch of actors in it, where, wait, this guy has mastered playing himself. He's lived that life for 50 years, 40 years. Whoever the first-time actor who is borrowing deeply from their own experience Sometimes these actors feel a bit of a burden and kind of intimidated that they're like, I can never match that 50 years of experience. I was just in a romantic comedy last week. Like, you know, it's a it's a yeah, yeah. it actually raises the stakes for them and it brings the best out of them quite a bit. But Eric spoke about that. The last scene, too. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I'll talk about it because a lot of people haven't okay, seen the okay. movie yet. <laughs> well, Ronnie, we should include you in this because you're, you're part of the process. Is Ronnie's never been this quiet, ever. <laughs> yeah, we, need, we needed to kind of build up to you because you're sort of at the center of all this stuff as both writer and, and editor and the way that they're talking about it, you know, sort of organically working things into the screenplay. I'm sure some of that stuff comes with you into the editing bay, but you're also dealing with, I'm sure, a lot of different options in terms of how to thread this thing together. So, you know, what's that challenge like? Mm. Uh, it seems, uh, well, first of all, it's, it's helpful to be the, an editor and a writer just because you feel like you don't have to be, as an editor, you can disrespect the writer without feeling at all like you have to honor their intentions. And that's a nice thing to do, you know? <laughs> You know, in general, I just feel like each phase is um, predicated on disrespecting the phase prior. So that, you know, I mean, when, when Josh and I are writing, it's, uh, we're not so much worried about the directing, right? We're just like, well. You're not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm just like, fuck him. He's not we, worried about me right You said we, though, yeah. Right? And then, you know, once they get into directing, especially once it's filtered through the casting, you know, um, uh, because again, because because Josh is a writer, and it's very easy for him to look back and betray those intentions when need be, and not feel the need to honor what those intentions were. And then in the editing, it's the best. You just get to say "fuck you" to both people behind you, and just anything that's not um, strong enough, you know, in terms of what the original tension of the work was. You know, you just can obliterate, you can get rid of, and you don't have to worry about somebody's feelings being hurt. Well, sometimes with me. I mean. You know, we always joke that Josh, whenever we would cut something out, because we get pretty ruthless, yeah. pretty ruthless, and my then we're favorite. like, oh, that's my favorite scene. Yeah. <laughs> it's all, Josh is always attached to things that you have no idea he would be attached to. You know, it's just very funny. 
Did this feel like a bigger movie for you guys? Because when I was watching it, I was like, first of all, I had no idea that it was going to start on another continent, which is not a huge spoiler because I'm not telling you which one or what exactly happens, but, you know, you can figure that out. And then there's this wild kind of trippy, you know, psychedelic part of the movie as well, which, you know, felt like I felt like I was watching 2001 or something. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how you guys arrived at, at that side of things, kind of. You know, kicking things up a notch or entering into kind of newer terrain in a way. Well, 2000, you mentioned 2000. 2001, you know, is one of the greatest films ever made. It's just, it's an ever, it's an, it, it will always, the more you revisit it, and you should kind of revisit it every few years in your life or five years, because you can see different things like a Rorschach test and where you're, where you're at in life. But it's a, it was, it's the first. <clears throat> It's the first movie for me to realize that we are the aliens in some regards. You know, we are the universe is inside of each of us, and, and we, and, you know, and you, and it is, you know, this monolith. Someone joked, someone sent me a picture of the Furby, uh, bejeweled Furby that's in the movie, and they took a picture of it as if it was the monolith, and uh, you know, because because capitalism is like this great monolith that we that we uh, you know revere and. Uh, becomes mythic to us, mythic for So that element, we wanted to kind of bring it to it. And it, it, we luckily were able to have the, you know, the, the means to, to kind of follow what normally a, a, a studio would say, this is a little extravagant. We're going to spend a lot of money on this. Uh, and we found that with every movie, with Daddy Longlegs, we spent you know, probably 10% of the budget making a mosquito. Only uh, for it to get destroyed. Only for yeah. it to get destroyed, Ten yeah. Ten seconds into its appearance <laughs> in the movie. Exactly. Yeah, literally, and we also, but, we underlight it. We don't, you barely see it, you know. But but with this, we really, you know, I was, it was, it was um, a lot of fun personally to be involved in a VFX, you know, uh, Just journey. Like, and the mission, VFX but, is actually more than the budget of Daddy Long. Yeah, you know, Which is was. so insane. And the other thing that's kind of interesting is that you guys often bring, you know, familiar faces into your projects. There's like a a, a real world element, and um, you know, Kevin Garnett is obviously, you know, the fact that the movie is set in 2012 seems to have a very specific like narrative function in this movie involving Kevin Garnett. But also, you have The Weekend. So, mm-hmm. you know, what was it like for you guys to approach those folks and and kind of work them into the story that you wanted to tell? Well, it all kind of form followed function all the time, you know. So if we, we bat the movie story, we started writing the movie in 2010. So it naturally started with Amari Stoudemire and the Knicks, and it was contemporary then. <coughs> but then as we kept uh, kind of trying and failing, uh, it, we tried to modernize it at, along the way. Uh, and then up until about four months before we were shooting the movie, what, what was great about Abel at the weekend is that he we had a, a lifespan of a career to work with. So we can like know, okay, well, we can't pick a player that predates 2012 because that's really when he would be realistically in New York and be a thing. So we, <clears throat> but it was a contemporary movie up until four months before we started shooting. And then that's when we realized we were shooting in the fall and we weren't going to be able to shoot with a particular basketball player who's, we were working with or Joel and yeah. Any active player wouldn't be allowed to do it because yeah. their schedule is so crazy. So, so, so really, once you once we you know landed on okay, it's it's you know we, once we picked the player who's obviously a, a main part of the movie, uh, we were able to go back and and that was annoying because every it's time like, we changed, we didn't have like our our you know. We couldn't pick from all the retired. The player picked us too. There was a, there was some chemistry in a deep yeah. way. Like we had a phone call with Kevin Garnett, and we were like, "Oh shit!" Like we actually hit it off. We wanted to stay on the phone. This guy felt much like when Jen interviews someone and they feel electric and they feel right for the movie. He felt right. We didn't have a plethora of players to pick from at that point. Yeah, we really. There, there were a couple that we could. But it wasn't. It was a. Couple, but it, yeah, it but was it was like couple. Garnett was unbelievable, and he also he's like. He understood that we it, this wasn't just a cameo. He understood this was a real thing, like a real part in the movie, and he he respected that and was very game to get deep with it. I remember Scott Rudin asking me, "But can he act?" And uh, <laughs> and and I had to and I wrote a response to that because it, it's that's when all of a sudden you know, fifteen years of of working with you know people who you met on the street or or or. Um, first timers gets into comes into handy because you start to you start to 
try to put into words what makes somebody what what creates an instinct of somebody being a good performer or a natural performer and i pull i was pulling like nba interviews to show you know uh uh, scott that that he was a natural there were clips from his show where he showed just raw emotion and passion and passion and it's like this is a show on national television and he's not afraid to express himself in that way, and that goes back to what and I also was saying. Sa- I also you know, said, like, like a, to play himself, you have to be comfortable yeah. showing the world what you think of yourself, and that's a very, very complicated. Well, no, and then to take do. to that reading words yes, yes. that are being told are yes, yours, exactly. and that was what was so cool about Kevin is that he was willing to play a, an all, a strange version of himself that's not really him. Mm-hmm. You know, he wouldn't really you know get into a situation like he does in the movie. But I, but I, I remember saying this guy. I was like, "I've only been wrong once. Just trust me." And he was like, "When were you? When you say you're only wrong once, it's..." Tr-. And I remember I, we, and Daddy Longlegs, we ended up, we ended up. Yeah, Ronnie was on the recipient end of it. Uh, we cast some guy, met him in a bar, and I was like, "Oh, he's gonna be perfect. He's gonna be perfect for this part." Uh, the part ended up being played by Abel Ferreira. But we shot. I remember we shot like three takes with this guy. And he showed up, and he was like a different person. And Benny's like, "What's up?" What? I remember, I remember yeah. after the first he was, date, Ronnie looks over at us like, "Oh God, what are we gonna do?" Yeah. Because this isn't a time where we could really recast. That was a lot. And yeah, also, every minute you're yeah. shooting is very also, expensive. You know, the <clears> three of us in general are both are all very, very anxious people. You know, and if you think of, yes. um, you know. <laughs> You know, there's, there's, you know, when you think of like the nature of improv and that openness, like there, there's, there's no hippie in us, yeah. you know. And when you try to define anxiety as like, what, what, like a flat, like a flailing need to control something that you feel is eluding your grasp, right? I mean, improv just like while the, when you're allowing people to help write your movie while the while it's unspooling, you know, it is so tight and so stressful because again you're trying to fold things into a superstructure you are essentially trying to pluck someone's brain out of their head and write with it with as much control as you would with a pen you know um, and yeah that was that was horrible when it goes wrong it's horrible it feels like the entire so it, after the, the third take we just apart, we said we got it we got everything yes, we need it is, it, and, it and is, I haven't spoken to him since it's almost it's very <laughs> it's very debilitating cuz you're just like what do we do and he was a nice guy, but he was a nice guy. The problem was is that I met him, and he was, he was under the influence oh, yes. of alcohol, and he just had a looseness to him. And then he showed up, and there was a real the this. I just remember. Yeah. I just remember say, after like three takes, all right, we got it. He's like, really, you got it? I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're gonna we'll figure it out. We got we'll we'll edit it together. It'll be great. He's like, you're gonna do that? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna do it, right? <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. This is an extension of that you guys shoot a lot on location without really, you know, keeping pedestrians off the set. So, we're, you know, logistically, how does that play out for you guys? It seems like they're... Well, in a movie like this is like, you know, I remember the, the day, negative day two, <clears throat> we were shooting on 47th Street. 47th Street, you're actually not allowed to shut it down just because it's such, there's so much commerce happening on the block. To shut it down, you're killing so much business. So we and we were happy to hear that. We were like, great, we don't want to shut anything down. We want to include real people with our SAG background people. Uh, uh, but we, I remember having to go and do a um, uh, uh, costume uh, like check on Adina Menzel, who just came in, and they said, oh, the tra- her, the costume trailer is two blocks over. So I go to 45th Street and I turn and I remember seeing all these trailers. And I'm telling you, I'm not joking. I remember thinking, oh, I wonder what they're shooting. <laughs> I, th- that was that was how new the size, the magnitude of this production was to me, and and I looked around and I was like, oh my god, this is. So I saw someone from production. I was, I was like, where's wardrobe? And they're like, oh, it's the fifth one over here on the left. And I was like, I was like, this is it for us. I, I couldn't believe that. And then I walk in and I see Miyako, our costume designer, and she's like, arms spread open. She's like, we made it. You know what I mean? But it was, it was. But but my point is, is like that was, that scale of production was new this was you know a, a, a you know a major union film and and we had a certain amount of people there was over 100 people every day and 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 the you know i think the challenge became how do we refrain from disrupting life in the city so that we can still figure out a way to capture it um and then you know at times you can't and you just have to do 
go above and beyond. I remember writing notes and saying like, okay, there's three Indian, uh, three Indian tourists here. Uh, this family from looks like they're from Nebraska and like writing them down like a whole like survey of the street one day and sending it to our extras casting director, Debbie Lisi saying, this is what we need for this street. She's like, oh, you know, but then you get it and you're looking at it and it doesn't look anything like, of course, what you saw that day when you took the, the survey. The, the, and the thing is that the background actually ended up becoming very important because the way we were going to frame it was that everybody's face could be in the, at, like could come at center frame and block the action at any point. So each person was very important. So in addition to that, we had a lot more of them. So when we didn't close the streets down, we could have 80 people walking down the sidewalk pretending not to be in a movie. So when people look down the street and see what's going on, they're like, oh, it's just a normal city street. And they do, there's like nothing to see here. And they keep walking. And the idea is we hopefully, we don't want to present ourselves like, oh, this is a big movie set, cut, action, this, that. And the whole like rigmarole that goes through it all, we want to kind of be more relaxed and just kind of more like... I, I remember though the first day I saw all insane. of the signage on the streets. Ripped it all down. And I was yeah. so angry. I went around ripping them all down and the crew was looking like, this guy is such an idiot. Like... There's, I didn't realize there was a, two blocks away was 50 trailers. So in my mind, I'm thinking like, they're gonna blow our cover, you know? <laughs> but like, that's the type of thing that I had to get used to very quickly on this movie. And you do, you just, you just, you know, you end up working it way, you end up working with it in a, in a strange well, way. Well, and you guys are still very close to the action. I mean, Benny, you still hold the boom yeah, yeah. mic, right? I mean, it was yeah. had to get into 52. That was, yeah, that was, that. that was difficult because it was, it's you not... You had to become a union member to yes, do that. Yes, and I am now. Um, the thing is, it's because it's... I like it because if, if this was a set, you know, everybody up here was acting, if you're not the boom operator, you can't stand right here. But I'm allowed to stand right here, you know, and just be very close to the actors. It's, it's an interesting point of view. And it was just funny because when they said you can't do it, we were just like, huh, well, that's how we've done it in the past. That's kind of how we got used to it. You know, I'll be, I'll have a different point of view than Josh does, and then we'll put it together. But luckily, we were able to work it out. And because it, it just, it, to everybody on the set, when they came in, it was a very different thing to see, you know, to see me in there doing that. But I, I, I think, I think it, it made it feel very intimate. And I, so I also just didn't know another way to do it. <laughs> but I do want to leave time for questions from the audience. Really quickly, though, I, I want to get into the sound of this film because I know sound mix for you guys is a big thing. And, you know, so far it's been playing at film festivals where, you know, sometimes the theaters aren't full-time theaters and it's a whole complicated thing. <laughs> Maybe, uh, Dan, from your perspective, you could tell us a bit about, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with a score that has so many different levels to it, you know, how do you figure out, you know, what's too loud? You know, what's what's the right kind of middle ground that you want? When do you want to, like, have that impact on, on viewer where it feels too loud, you know? Well, loudness isn't really a concern for me. It's more Skip's problem, his department, which lucky for me. But I love personally working with you guys because you're all deaf and you just turn my score up as loud as it can go, <clears throat> which for, you know, I'm not. A, well, I can't hear you. What would you say? <laughs> As a as a full time egomaniac, not really a film score composer, it's great for me. Um, so hearing my stuff really loud is good. But to uh, address your question, I think you do have to make, you know, in the in the world of production, uh, you'll often hear producers talk about like uh, let don't you know when people say leave it to the mix person to figure out, it's a huge cop out mm -hmm. because part of producing an album is arranging the album so that the mixer has to do very little. So that rule I transfer over to our work together and I try to make very important arrangement decisions, meaning the instrumentation needs to cut when you need something to cut and it needs to be smooth or curved when it needs to curve and hang back. And in a with the amount of density in your dialogue with the... Uh, you know, with the labs being really crisp, but then there's a lot of uh, frenetic. Yeah, there's the reverb from the boom. We wanted all that in there. Crazy, crazy foley that I think Benny does himself a lot of the time too. Was, well, there was, a, there was a lot of foley that I didn't do. That's true. That was but, out of control. Good. Yeah. yeah, I loved it. It was amazing to see. There's but just a very. It's a very dense. That was just yeah, crazy casserole of of shit, and so I need to make very. Uh, very um, uh, cut and dry decisions about how not to get in the way of those important things 
while also not lo having the score go go kind of limp underneath everything. So it's it's a challenge on that level. I yeah, and that's where Skip comes in actually and helps and makes Skip's my job it, yeah. easier. Well, Skip lives say one been many times nominated for an Oscar, one for Gravity. So and we're working with him. He's like, we're gonna use Atmos, and we're like, we're used to like, you know, I think on Good Time we actually used a proper Dolby. We're used to like sneakily using the Dolby box before Good Time. Yeah, sneaking so LTR. So now we're using Atmos, which you have. You can put a sound over there. You know. Well, Sorry, it, well, I was just gonna say when we're editing, we can't we we can't edit with like bad sound a lot of times we'll try and even like overcut we will not use it if it's not good you know we don't want to do adr right yeah. or um i guess just a failure of our imaginations <laughs> we don't um you know the idea of like leaving certain jobs um free for the next step down the road like a like someone who would be cutting in and creating sound effects and just sort of you know it's impossible to judge whether things are working unless you're just putting all of that work in yourself so ultimately, you know, once an FX person comes in and starts putting in those sound effects, doing the foley, they're really just replacing the sort of you know dollar store versions of those sounds that Benny and I are creating ourselves. There, there. Was, this was actually pretty. We worked with Skip and then Warren Shaw, who was amazing. Um, uh, sound effects. You know, he he would sound he, designer. Sound designer, but he had all these. He had all this work and all these libraries, and he came in and brought kind of these full sounds, yeah. and it was just unbelievable to hear. Like these, like we were alluding to certain things, but then he comes in and just like the the the, the fullness of these sound effects. Were well, we're maximalists, so yeah. we're gonna and uh, like you know one sound has to have you know six yeah, different and, layers. And like Josh was saying, then you have Atmos, where each speaker has its own full frequency. Each one, so you have all these speakers that run around the room, and each one can do its own specific thing to a specific sound. And but I think in conceptually, when we're talking about sound, like there's the technical side, but conceptually, you know, New York in particular, movie takes place in New York is we you i get afraid when i leave the city because you're in the quiet calm of like a rural space and it's you're too just, quiet right it, yeah. you it, you don't know what your your privacy all of a sudden feels you know it feels naked and it does it feels public in a weird way but when you have all this noise that's surrounding you all the time your privacy really feels like it's yours because you can like sneak around and you know and it, it you can kind of uh, you can disappear in a weird way and and that was a big concept of the sound mix in general is like what let's create this this soundscape and and that way the overall effect will be you know it, you'll feel that like weird certain intimacy and privacy yeah. that you get when you're like amongst a lot of noise and there's certain sounds that you don't realize are all kind of compounding on one another because a lot of times it's like you'll have a straight up ambient track just that says new york city street but then what we got into here was what makes a New York City street a New York City street? Well, you have sirens, you have construction, you have people talking, you have a baby crying. You can name like distant traffic. Distant traffic. Oh, FDR in the background going. We got a little carried away. We though. got very we carried away, but it all sounds of, fun, especially with all that of, one that one FDR. But yeah. all of that Benny. stuff together sounds incredible. And I remember I was trying. I was just walking. My son is like three, three and a half years old. I was walking with him, and we got to a part in the city where there was no sound. And I tried to. I was saying, listen, listen. There's no sound here. There's no sound, and he then all of a sudden, right in that moment, I just heard, eh, 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 eh. and then I heard the click of it turn off, and I texted Warren, being like, "Oh, we didn't have the car alarm getting turned off mid." mid but there was there's a great anecdote that you know because Altman was the first person to really try to achieve this idea of of what life sounds like and translate it to an optical soundtrack, and. Uh, yeah, and McCabe, Mrs. Miller, he was he walked at the premiere and he was sitting next to Warren Beatty. And Warren Beatty, after 15 minutes, turned over. I mean, there's conversations all over the place. 15 minutes in the movie, turned to Altman and he goes, Bob, does the whole movie sound like this? And he says, and Altman's like, yeah, it does, right? And he, oh, Warren Beatty was furious. like, Jesus, what was I doing acting? You know, you can just layer it with all this other stuff. We're going to squeeze in one or two questions just to make sure that the microphone gets to you. We'll start with um, you, sir, back there in the blue shirt. And then uh, we'll get one or two more. How did your collaboration with Darius Konji change the way that you work compared to your previous films? And how much did you end up shooting with that Francesco Rossi lens that he ended up finding? How do you know about that Rossi lens? He mentioned it. 
Okay. He, it's the bullfighting one, right? Yeah, that's a great. It was a, one of the first films that we watched together. Um, was a uh, technoscope movie called Moment of Truth by uh, Rossi, and there was a 300 millimeter C series lens, 300, you know, and and uh, we called it like a. He had some a name for it. I forgot the name. But we we didn't use it as much as we thought we would, because it really is you break it out for very specific anamorphic. This it was his. Upon reading the script, the first meeting we had when we started going through uh, the storyboards and, and the shot list, he said, "I, I want to shoot anamorphic, and I think we should because I think the human face in anamorphic, in particular a fifty millimeter lens, he's like is like a three D experience." And and he saw he at that point. He said we would love it. He said, "Yeah, he said you guys will love it." And he had seen at that point a lot of uh, the cast, as the cast that had been uh, established by that point. So he's like, "This film is about the faces of the, of this world," and he wanted to honor it by by using a, a format that he thought would work. And usually, the format that works with the human face is four by three, you know, that make just proportionately the head. It's a vertical thing. It's not a rect. It'd be weird if it was. I mean, unless you're making Dick Tracy. You're, you know, the head is not a rectangle, but um, <laughs> so. But he said this will this will give you the effect of 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 being next to the person and seeing them because of the way the lens distort uh, distorts or not distorts but honors the distortions of the face. So, but he he um, Darius was uh, you know our previous cinematographer was uh, is an incredible uh, DP. He's a great operator. And uh, you know, Darius didn't operate as much on this film. Darius was more—he uh, will let me frame the film and and uh, you know, obviously give input. But his thing, a lot of this film was shot on a stage, so everything you'll see is is basically artificial lighting. And he is just a poet with 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 lighting. Uh, he really, he he like Benny. You, yeah, I, I call him a necromancer because he. He looks at daylight like a living thing, and he would spend all this time recreating daylight. And then when he finishes, he just looks at it and holds his hand out, and he's like, there. <laughs> and it's very profound, because he nails it. Yeah. And it's so insane. And, and, he, and the nuance of the way that he deals with lighting, the way that he knows, he knows film. We shot on film as well. And he knows how light reacts with film. I mean, Darius invented you know, bleach bypassing. You know, he invented so many things that just come with a click and a DI now. So he knows these things on a on a physical level, on a basic level, and and uh, just working with him on 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 films. You know, and I, going into it, like I said earlier, we made this Jay Z video together. You know, his reputation that preceded him was that he was that he was a twelve setup uh, ph a photographer, and we did about thirty a day. So and and the Jay Z video was the hardest scenario, hardest shooting scenario I've ever been in in my life, and he was. He's very calm. He, he was, was very he was like he was a, a rock in those. Yes, moments. he was a calm, poetic center, and I had a direct communication with him the entire shoot, and I would just get to hear him emotionally respond to the story often, and that was that became uh, larger than just the 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 photo photographic experience. It was. It was different. He was accessing it from a different point of view, an emotional one. So th that became an interesting uh, uh, collaboration. I, and just I want to add the, the quickly, he, the, the camera team that he put together, he approached it like casting. You know, he That's would right. look at it, who's going to fit this vibe? Who's going to fit in and like kind of get dirty with this movie? And he put together an amazing team. That and then the Light Rangers, but we don't need to go into that. The Light Ranger 2 is important. So we have the microphone with the gentleman back here. Oh, um. I have a question for Daniel with the score. Um, the sound sounds very almost like um, kind of like 80s, 90s, like Vangelis type, like very synthy, um, but like in a very like brazen and quite like a raw way. But how do you have a score that goes on for that long in the film um, and almost not draw too much attention to it? Um, because it also sounds very stacked, very layered, like you've got like, a bunch of synths going on at once, which is great, but also how do you not like get in the way at the same time? Um, you just have to. I think we're. I think it's a lot of it is like Josh and I are both have the same tendency to to first try to see 
how high we can stack the Jenga blocks. And then, all right, okay, that didn't work. So let's start pulling back. But you know, I think there's diff there's probably a more um, uh, uh, a more sane approach to that, which means, you know, don't stack all that stuff and then have to subtract. But we want to hit this feeling. We want to get to the rich part first, the most soulful, most, most true shining thing that we can find. So we find that, we build that first, that's the most important thing. And then we figure out how we can let it simmer down and bring it down and play with the dynamics, it's easy. But without that soul, without that heart that you have to find through all these crazy experiments where you just blow things out, it's very difficult to proceed with the other, you know, that could be a 30 second moment in a six minute long Cue. So a lot of it is thinking about the sort of formal parameters of, okay, we have six minutes, it doesn't stop, but it kind of does stop. It does many different things. It's a, it's a living thing. It's, it's dancing. So just let it have, let, let it live its different lives as long as, it, as we hit those very important beats and those, those moments where it's, you're, you're flooded with, you know, with that sort of maximalist soul that I think we share, you know? So we could be here another hour, but unfortunately we're out of time. So thank oh, no. you all for being here. Thank you, Eric. Thank, thank you for coming out. I think it's worth it's worth saying there's if we're here, we might as well say it. That we we spent over the past decade literally in the room behind here. I was a projectionist here yeah. for eight years and uh you know, we weren't making any money on any of the movies. We don't think we had an office or anything. So, uh, yeah, the script was, yeah, it was written pretty and much two here. movies. Edited. Oh, and yeah. content. So anyway, it's and worth mentioning because he got it. Yeah. We have it's to still say home. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So thank you. So it feels good to hear. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases. The publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education curriculum and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org.